0: and get 10% off your plan.
2: You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, advertising, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Griner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. And with me, as he is each week, is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, welcome back.
1: Thanks, David. Good to be here. You were off last week. Were you doing fun stuff? I was doing a staycation in Maine, which was quite lovely. Thank you. Nice. Yes. It's
2: like perfect time of year. It's like hot everywhere else, but it's probably pretty nice. I know
1: here. you can't leave Maine in July. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh,
2: also, back is frequent uh, podcast guest and producer on the podcast and staff writer. Well, ooh, wait, you have a new job title. <laughs> Christ- I, I do. Christina Monlos uh, is now a senior editor on the brand marketing team at AdWeek. Congratulations on your promotion, Christina. I can't believe we haven't had you back.
1: Oh, hey,
3: thanks. Um, I guess this means people can send me all of the emails that they were already sending me about brand marketing, but now I have a different title, so it's exciting. Yeah,
2: I'm excited. Where should people reach out to you?
3: My first name, dot last name at AdWeek.com.
2: Yeah, it's a good thing your parents named you first name, last name.
3: It's good, It's yeah. Christina
2: Monlos with two L's, I think. But yeah, yeah. check the show notes. We'll, we'll put her <laughs> name in there. Also back is Chris Aaron's, our media editor here at Adweek. Chris, welcome back. Thanks,
4: David. Happy to be here.
2: Uh, we got a lot for you to talk about this all week. All right. So much TV-ness and media-ness and all sorts of... Good nuggets, politics, yeah. converging with media. It's all fun. All up in the Aaron's world this week. Uh, so we have got a lot to talk about. As I mentioned, we've got some... It's just a bizarre week at the White House, and we're going to talk about what that means for the media world, which, of course, was kind of right in the middle of it and having a blast covering uh, the bizarre implosion of the White House uh, communications team. Uh, We're going to talk about some stuff coming on the Television Critics Association summer tour, which is happening right now. It's a big event for the TV industry. We find out a lot about what's going on uh, with networks and uh, like HBO, which we're going to be talking about quite a bit. Uh, and then uh, we're going to hear about the best ads of the week from Tim finally we're going to end with our big discussion of the week which is about whether or not advertising can actually do good can ads help the world can ads help people this is a frequent point of debate in the ad industry and we're going to happily be raising it again with uh, some some new campaigns that have been coming out but first the news <laughs> All right. So I, I'd say the most exciting kind of bizarre news to come out this week was uh, political, but also definitely involved the media. Uh, Anthony Scarmucci, the uh, director of communications was his title, right? Uh, That's Chris? right.
4: At the White House. Yep,
2: He was in for a whopping 10 days. Uh, and in, what a 10 days it was. So, yeah. so uh, help us remember kind of the process here between him coming in, Sean Spicer coming out and
4: and where we ended up. June 21st was when it all began. June 31st, uh, sorry, July 21st, July 31st is when it began and end for Anthony Scaramucci. He had long wanted a job with the administration. He was given a job starting in June at the XM Bank, which he never started uh, because he ended up getting the job of White House Communications Director uh, on July 21st, which was also uh, the same day that Sean Spicer resigned in protest. Uh, Spicer decided to stay on. Um, they were going to work together for a while. Then last week, Anthony Scaramucci had dinner with President Trump and Sean Hannity and a couple other people, and that got leaked to Ryan Lizza, a reporter from uh, New Yorker magazine. And uh, subsequently, Anthony Scaramucci uh, called Ryan Lizza and in an expletive-laden conversation talked about how he was going to fire all the leakers. He was going to fire everybody. Uh, A few days later, Anthony Scaramucci was the one who was fired by new uh, chief of staff, General John Kelly, who is not going to take guff from anybody at that White House. Because yeah, also in the middle of all this, uh, Rance
2: Priebus, the, uh, uh, the chief of staff of the White House, former head of the GOP, uh, shortly after uh, Scarmucci had said that, uh, what did he what did he say about Priebus?
4: Uh, that he was uh, paranoid. Paranoid, schizophrenic. <laughs> schizophrenic. Yep. He, he said Steve Bannon. Uh I don't even think we can podcast. say yes. I mean, This is yes. going to be an
1: expletive-laced podcast. You yeah, guys,
3: but. the New York Times printed the expletives just because the New Yorker did. So, um, I mean, do so, you, so I, I'm, thing, I'm what, encouraging. What? I'm Go encouraging. The New York well, I'm Times not was inconsistent. Say it, you say <laughs> it. <laughs>
1: uh,
4: it's in Ryan Liz's piece and, ev- and the New York Times and everywhere else if you want to read it. Um, uh, the way Brian Williams put it pretty uh, hilariously the night that happened was that uh, if Steve Bannon could do those things, he would have to be an acrobat. Uh, or a gymnast is what he said, a gymnast. So there are a few
2: aspects of the story that I think are fascinating. The, the, the number one being that he, his, I, at first when I read that inter- interview, I guess, with Scaramucci and Lizza, I thought, you know, this guy, like if he's literally just willing to say all this to a reporter, like, this could be kind of awesome. Like, it could be one of the most interesting White House communications people of all time. But instead, sadly, the next day, he was like, oh, I trusted a reporter that was supposed to be off the record. Well, in which case, he was leaking. to live. Like, if you're calling and you're telling a bunch of information off the record, you're a leaker, which is exactly what he was calling to complain about. So either it was an on-the-record conversation or he was leaking, either way. And uh, so what was the media coverage of this like, I mean, this, it, I guess, what was from your perspective, what, what has the last week been like of, and I should point out that you also edit TV Newser, our blog about the TV News industry, and man, this was just a, it was a nonstop storm of coverage.
4: It was, it was made for TV News, and then the media on media angle, so again, starting on that Friday, July 21st, when we first got word from Glenn Thrush of the New York Times, who broke the story that Sean Spicer was out, then come to find out why, because Anthony Scaramucci was in, and then several days later, uh, Ryan Liz are reporting this in The New Yorker. So there was there was so many different media angles about how it was all reported and who got what. And uh, Ryan Liz, of course, is also paid by CNN to be a contributor. So he was on CNN nonstop last week to talking about his reporting. So there were, uh, And then Fox News, Anthony Scaramucci was a paid contributor from Fox News. And we know because... Uh, of the, uh, government document that he had to sign, uh, disclosing, uh, a lot of information about himself made $88,000 from Fox news as a contributor. Not that he needed it. He's a, he's a multimillionaire, uh, hedge fund manager since sold off his hedge fund. So he could take this government job, uh, which he no longer has. And actually TMZ spotted him this morning. This is Tuesday, uh, coming out of where else the Trump hotel where he's been staying. And, uh, Without any plans for the day, apparently.
2: Yeah, I picture, like, the open banker box. Like, you know, he's got, he's got his stuff. He's got, like, the one loosely packed suitcase. Mm-hmm.
4: Shades. Starbucks.
2: <laughs> Rowing around Central Park uh, Pond. Yeah. Yep. Um, so is there any chance Sean Spicer may get to keep the job that he was losing?
4: Technically, he's still an employee of the White House. He's there. He said last week that he was going to be there through August. Um, so yesterday, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, was at, who was the news press secretary, the first female uh, mother uh a woman who was a mother, who was the press secretary, uh, which she proudly uh, proclaimed last week, uh, said yesterday that uh, there's no changes in terms of Sean Spicer coming back to the White House, but he's still there through August.
2: Well, thank you. That was a, you know, there was a lot to peck into that summary, and I appreciate you. Yeah. You know, I'm sure most people have heard about this, but the media angle is something that I just thought was so fascinating, and it's rare that the inner workings of talking to, I mean, this is some all the president's men level where the conversations on the phone with the reporters are are as central to the news as the news itself. Absolutely. I,
3: I should note as someone who used to write about finance that all of my finance reporter friends were like, guys, if you know anything about reporting on this world, like Scaramucci and all of the dudes who like run head funds, they all do this. They all call. They all say this crap and then they get mad at you for actually reporting on it and then they like burn you and try and ruin your career
2: what was what was uh was it uh trump who said the that's just locker talk like that really does seem to summarize the way these guys see it, is like i can say all this stuff and no one should ever call me out on it because that's just locker
1: well talk. trump's also a guy who would call people pretending to be a pr guy right like back in the day you know i mean their approach to communications is sort of seat of their pants, to say the least. But
2: it will be, you know, maybe they will. Every And, and it's like, I overheard a news report this morning. Someone said, well, is this the new uh, chief of staff? Is this going to be a turning point where they become a more buttoned up uh, White House? I feel like that We've had that conversation so many We've times. We've talked about a lot
4: of turning points over the last six months. <laughs> and really, he's going
2: to become more presidential now. And then, and then the next day he tweets
4: like, <laughs>
2: just like 14
4: tweets before 4 a.m. And he tweeted this morning that he's not, no one's going to be taking away his social media. The president did. So good luck to John Kelly if he can try to at least tame him a little bit. If it's getting in the way with actually getting his agenda accomplished, which is it's all about for
2: them my favorite uh trump tweet maybe ever was yesterday after all this went down and he tweeted it's a great day at the white house
3: (laughs) next level trolling he's really good at it it's amazing
2: (laughs) that every response is like savage All right. Well, thank you, Chris, for that update. Uh, But we're going to stay on you now because, as I mentioned, we have a lot of updates
4: coming out of the Television Critics Association. Remind us again, what is the TCA? So the Television Critics Association meets twice a year for two to three weeks, once in January and once in the summer, uh, uh, late July, early August. All of the television networks, cable and broadcast, uh, uh, bring out their stars, bring out their executives to meet with the Television Critics Association. Uh, and they talk about what shows are upcoming, um, sort of status of the business, um, all that good stuff. So
2: uh, let's talk HBO because, I mean, there's a lot of updates. I definitely recommend everyone, sh- if you're into this topic, you should check out Adweek.com. Click on our TV and media section, uh, our TV and video, because you will find all of Jason Lynch, our uh, uh, senior editor uh, for television, who's out there. Uh, definitely check out all that. But let's talk about HBO because, man, there's
4: a lot of HBO stuff coming out. of Yeah. So HBO had their day uh, uh, late last week. uh, Today, again, this is Tuesday, so broadcast networks start this week. But in terms of HBO, they did confirm season three of True Detective is coming back. Um, Let's pause there because I want to
2: gauge everyone's excitement for this. I couldn't finish season two. I'm probably in the norm on that, but I think season one is some of the best television ever made.
4: I think HBO would agree with that uh, based on um, the viewer reception to season two. Um, they are excited about season three. They don't have a director. They have a star, Mahershala Ali, who won um, the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor uh, for Moonlight. Uh, so they're that far in the process of season three for uh True Detective.
2: I feel like that's kind of the same thing last year is like they made a big fuss of, uh, what was his name, Taylor Kitsch?
3: We made a big fuss. Let's be clear. We had him on our cover. Yeah. We we uh, made that fuss. You mean
2: when Adweek had the exclusive that Taylor Kitsch was going to be on True Detective Season 2?
3: Of all things. Of all things. Yeah,
2: and I think it was honestly just because he told us something he wasn't supposed to. But, um, you know, so much excitement going into Season 2. Did HBO, have they kind of owned up to the fact that Season 2 was a huge disappointment compared to
4: Season 1? Maybe not in so many words, but... They they, don't use the phrase huge disappointment? Yeah, they sort of have moved on from season two and and as casey blois said they're excited for season three
3: season two just didn't happen we can just ignore we it can
4: just ignore it so let's see it's true detective ahead. an
2: anthology series
3: i guess right I guess it would, be? yeah
2: it could be classified as such we, we yeah. never list it when we talk about anthologies like american horror story but it feels like it's in that vein where it doesn't really matter yeah like whether it's connected to the previous well it's sort of Fargo nothing matters same, this
3: time it's Herschel ali i'm watching that yes Absolutely. I think a lot of people feel that way.
2: All right, so I interrupted you on the... What else do we have uh, coming out of HBO? Uh,
4: Curb Your Enthusiasm coming back for season nine uh, in after, October. After how many years away? Um, Six? Something like that, yeah. yeah. And um, Larry David said he's doing it because he's tired of people asking him why he isn't doing it. So he's doing it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a good, <laughs> that's or, like the,
1: good a reason as any. It's like the most
4: Larry David reason to do something. is like, just, just stop talking by, to me. people yep. annoying him. Yeah. Um, One more bit of news. Uh, John Stewart's coming back to do a stand-up special, his first stand-up special in uh, about 21 years. Um, Not known for stand-up and and HBO, which uh, really brought stand-up comedy specials to television many, many years ago, but has since sort of gotten out of the game and ceded it to Netflix, which has spent uh, many millions of dollars to bring some of the top talent like uh, Chris Rock uh, to do standup specials for Netflix, but Casey Bloys, again the the president of HBO, has said that uh, it just doesn't make economic sense for them to do um, these stand-up specials. But John Stewart, they have a long term deal with him, um, so that's why we're going to see him this fall doing a special.
2: Do you remember the first time you ever saw John Stewart? Do you, when was the, what was the context on which you first ever any of you ever heard of John Stewart?
3: Wow. I, I can answer this pretty quickly. Um, Big Daddy, that movie. That sounds like Adam, an Adam Sandler movie. It's an Adam Sandler movie, and he, it was just him acting in it. it was his, he was the, the guy who was the dad of said child, and it was um, Adam Sandler stepping in and, and taking.
1: I feel like he, stepped, he uh, subbed in for some late-night talk shows before he got The Daily Show. When Craig Kilborn was still doing The Daily Show, I think he subbed in for Letterman a few times. Yeah, he might have. Um, that's where I remember him from, first of all. Chris, anything? I, I don't. No, it, it's, it's...
2: For me, it was that originally. What was it before? Before uh, Comedy Central, they were two different. There was Comedy Channel and Ha, mm-hmm. with an exclamation point. Yep, Ha, and uh, they. One of them, I think, Comedy Channel had John Stewart on Short Attention Span Theater, and he was the host of that, which I loved. Um, and then didn't hear from him again for like another what 20 years or <laughs> whatever it was that he pops up as like the most famous person on television. But, but just what a, what a fascinating career when he came back. you know, the idea that he's coming back to stand up, like, I'm just like, well, he can do anything. He'll probably make it work. Uh, okay. Uh, what else we got, John? So we covered John Stewart. Oh, let's talk Confederate. Is mm-hmm. that what it's called? Or yeah. like, controversial alternate history.
4: Yeah. The alternate history, um, rollout of it, uh, was, did not go over so well. Um, and again, Casey Bloys admitted that they should have um, um, sort of taken their time in how they discuss this. Uh, it's come it comes from the the creators uh, of Game of Thrones, um, two white men, and so the backlash has been, why do you have a series about the um, called Confederate and. You don't. Your showrunners are both two white men. And it's a it's a
2: show about if the South had not lost and if slavery, slavery had, had kept continued.
4: Up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so sort of Man in the High Castle esque, uh, which is the Amazon series, which is the alternative um, uh, history to what would have happened if if Germany had prevailed in World War II. Um, but uh, HBO is standing by the creators and and the and the series itself, and they said they're going to go forward with it, um, and, and we'll see if the the uh, controversy continues, um, leading right up into whenever it premieres.
3: I saw a really interesting thread on Twitter about why that comparison between Man in the High Castle and this show doesn't work. Um, they were sort of saying that because Germany has actually tried to make, like, reparations for what the the, the atrocities that happened, um, and America has, surprise, surprise, not, <laughs> that it's just not the same to try and Try and do that, especially when um, Confederate flags are still all over the yeah, South. Yeah, you don't see, like,
2: Nazi flags and Iron Crosses all over no, the, you you know, half of Germany the way you do. As I say this as someone who lives in the South. I mean, it is the fetishization of the Confederacy is is an ongoing and disgusting thing. Um, you know, it reminds me, there was that movie, The CSA, right? It was, what it was called Confederate States of America. And did you, any of you see that? It was like a fake... what they call them, not mockumentary, but it was like a fake documentary about uh, this world where the Confederacy won. So this is not exactly the most original idea, um, but the point of the movie is that, which I think was directed by a black man, uh, it was that the South did win the war. On a long enough timeline, racism and intolerance did become the prevailing uh, mood of America. So So the point of that movie is that it shows a show like Cops and it's exactly the same as real life, except they're chasing uh, runaway slaves instead of, you know, so it's black guys in like white shirts and running away from cops. And in the, you know, it's so the footage is the same. It's just you, they, they packaged it as if the Confederacy had never ended. So that was very much a cultural criticism of modern America, exactly like what Christina is talking about. Um, that was the whole point. The director said on the commentary, like, they did win. And that's what this is about. And, man, not the vibe that came out of that initial. But they admitted uh, that the rollout was not great, but they're sticking with it, right, on HBO.
4: That's right. And when you have D.B. Weiss and David Benioff, who created the most successful series in HBO's history behind this, they're going to stand by them.
2: And Game of Thrones has been problematic in a lot of its own ways, too. I mean, the way they've handled sexual assault, the way they've handled portrayals of women and sexualization, it is tough sometimes to be like, yeah, the two white guys behind this say that everything's fine, don't worry about it. Yeah,
4: yeah. (laughs) And a bit of news about Game of Thrones. One se- current season now. There's one more season, but they do not know if it's going to premiere in twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. So it'll be a long goodbye for Game of Thrones. Are we? We're gonna have to wait like two years, possibly. But they're also uh, the, the prequels and sequels um, are also being considered, uh, which is not news. But um, what is news is that they're not going to star any of the current cast members from any of the different kingdoms.
3: I really thought Game of Thrones was ending after these 7 episodes whatever this was One more and season. you you have just disappointed me. Sorry to disappoint so you, Christina. Significantly
2: i like to have you on the show to disappoint as many possible people as you can. See what I can do. Uh, Well, thank you for recapping some of the bigger news out of HBO. Again, definitely recommend everyone check out adweek.com and click on the TV and video section to get lots more TCA coverage. Uh, The other, we'll just touch on this kind of briefly, but Discovery Communications is acquiring Scripps Network. These are two of the biggest players in TV. They now account for, I believe, something like 20% of commercial cable. Uh, in a combined as a $14 billion deal. I guess just briefly tell us why this matters. Why should those of us who aren't in the TV
4: industry, like what is it about this that, that matters? Uh, cost savings, frankly. Um, cord cutting is is a reality. Uh, both of these um, companies have been very nimble and moved very quickly to digital programming and, and digital output. As we know, they produce something like 8,000 hours of programming each year, 7 billion short video streams monthly combined. But it's about it's a, a 14 or so billion dollar deal and they figure between the two companies they can save about 350 million dollars a year. Um, as um, more bundling happens um, and more cable cord cutting happens and you have the YouTube TVs and the Hulu stri- streaming services of the world that may or may not pony up uh, for uh, multiple channel packages. But now when you've got Discovery and Discovery Channel and OWN and HGTV and cooking and food, multiple networks that viewers want all owned by the same company, they have much more leverage over these uh, cable companies and streaming services to make sure that they're carried.
2: Well, thank you for keeping us updated on that. And we are ready to move on to my favorite part of the show each week, ads worth watching. Tim, what have you got for us this week?
1: Well, you know, we are going through a little bit of a lull, a midsummer lull in terms of uh, creative work. And so uh, the first campaign this week is for GoGurt, which is not a huge brand. Uh, But they came out with some pretty amusing ads this week from the San Francisco agency uh, Eric and Kallman. The the agency started recently by Stephen Eric and Eric Kallman. The name name itself is a pun, which is kind of amusing. Um, So, yeah, GoGurt is this YoPlay brand owned by uh, General Mills, of course, the parent company. And it's just a very amusing uh, uh, setup, which is you have these uh, two fourth graders named Tim and Charlie who are dressed up to look like old men and they're hilariously dressed up by the way the 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 makeup and hair on this production was pretty astonishing and uh they're talking about uh how third graders have it so easy so it's this sort of <laughs> um you know I, kids these days kind of thing with these grumpy old fourth graders uh, literally dressed up like old men um talking about uh, the third graders and the hook is that um apparently Gogurt has a new a uh, new packaging that's easier to to rip off the top. If anyone has kids or or had these as kids, it's a tube of yogurt that apparently was somewhat difficult to rip open. Until, yeah, you inevitably until just now. get like
2: the corner, or you tear <laughs> right.
1: like the end off, and you can't right. actually get any. Yeah. Right. So um, there's a bunch of spots. I think there's three or four spots with Tim and Charlie sitting in a, in a playground. Um, I, I think Tim has a walker and Charlie rides on a motorized wheelchair. Like a rascal. <laughs> And they're, they're like looking at the third graders who are just normal third graders and they're saying, you know, these kids today, they don't know how good they have it. We didn't have, in third grade, we didn't have go that, you know, you could rip the top off so easily. Let,
2: let's, uh, let's listen to one of the spots here.
4: Tim and Charlie, fourth graders. Third graders today, they don't know how easy they've
1: got it. Their new go tubes are easy open. Those things used to be impossible. And P.E. consists of sitting around on mats.
0: Now everybody, breathe.
1: Hippies. What are they going to work on tomorrow? Blinking. New Easy Open go Kids never had it so easy. So Harold Einstein directed these from Dummy Films, and he's done some really great comic spots over the years. And uh, Eric Coleman, of course, formerly of Goodby, and prior to that worked uh, worked at Wyden on the Man Your Man Could Smell Like commercial for Old Spice. So this is a guy with a pretty seasoned comic pedigree also. And these were just really well-written. It's the kind of ads that kind of hark back to the comedy, um, golden age of advertising comedy about a decade ago. Yeah, um,
2: Coleman was. I mean, with Skittles and all, Coleman was always at the the forefront of that of the absurdist humor phase of right. advertising. And
1: this, you know, for a General Mills brand, this is pretty kind of unusual, edgy stuff. So I enjoyed these ads a lot.
2: Wait,
3: you're saying that some nine year olds calling eight year olds uh, rascals or youths or whatever that's edgy.
1: Well, it's edgy compared to what you normally see, packaged yogurt ads looking like. Yeah, it's always which is like, like moms get yeah. get your kids the yogurt. You know, the they Go-gurt make and mom makes the kids
2: happy, and everyone smiles, and everyone gets their yogurt. Like, think
1: of it like a Sunny D commercial, but with yogurt. You know, that's typically what this stuff is. So this is very having dressing up. You know, nine year olds as seventy nine year olds is definitely a, a departure.
4: Yeah, if you're into Benjamin Buttons, it's it's
1: uh, <laughs> quite fun. That's right. Totally. Uh,
4: well, what else do you have for us uh,
1: And the other thing I wanted to talk about briefly was the, the Tesla um, fan-made ad contest. Uh, this this was a pretty funny story, uh, pretty cool story, actually, from I think it was back in March. Uh, as everybody knows, Tesla does not advertise. They don't need to advertise because they have such strong word of mouth. They don't feel it feel necessary. And uh, lots of people have noticed this. And it also has a, a, a real cult fan base, This this, this auto brand. Uh, run by Elon Musk, and so a lot of people over the years have made, um, you know, spec or fan-made, however you want to say it, commercials for for Tesla, and many of them have been incredible, uh, very high production values. Uh, A lot of production companies seem to decide to make a spec Tesla ad as sort of proof of their capabilities, and so back in March, the beginning of March, same week actually that um, Fearless Girl uh, launched in in downtown Manhattan, uh, a fifth grader, named Bria Loveday, wrote a letter to Elon Musk saying, hey, I, don't, I notice you don't advertise. I also noticed a lot of people have made fake Tesla commercials. Why don't you, I think they're great, why don't you have a contest to see who can make the best homemade Tesla ad? And this is a fifth grade girl, um, not, not a GoGurt fan that we know of. But um, Well, she had it a lot harder in her day than <laughs> she did a couple <laughs> years before. Uh, but Elon Musk, I think within an hour, said, that's a great idea, we're going to do it. So, uh, five months later, here we are. We had, I think it was about two or three weeks ago, um, Musk and his team posted the top 10 finalists on Twitter. Uh, They're on YouTube, but they were also posted to Twitter. And they uh, basically, uh, it was a public vote. And so the winner ended up being uh, a guy named, uh, what is his name? Marquise Brownlee, who is a well known YouTuber who goes by the name MKBHD. And uh, I think he probably won because it was a vote, and he has got 1.4 million YouTube subscribers. And I think he he turned he up the votes for this pr- pretty pretty easily. Uh, and it's not honestly the the greatest ad, probably among the ten. Certainly not the highest production values among the ten. Uh, and in fact, it's kind of a goofy ad. Uh, the the, the type, most of these entries had proper titles. His was just called Tesla Project Love Day Contest Entry! Exclamation And uh, it was kind of a goofy. It reminded me a lot of uh, kind of the. You know the, the less popular uh, Doritos crash the Super Bowl entries, like very kind of campy and cheesy acting. He he acts it in it him, himself, and uh, not much of a plot to speak of. He shows off a lot of the features of the car, and then he gets to a red light, and uh, a, a, you know he ends up sort of racing against some guy at a red light at the end, which eh, wasn't wasn't super great, but um you know it was it was apparently good enough to to make the top ten before the vote even started, so. Good for him. Uh, the other two fin- the other two top finishers, the second place spot uh, was a pretty interesting uh, ad. It was a guy kind of waking up in bed, and he's wearing, a, he's wearing an astronaut uh, co- uh, suit and uh, basically spends the whole morning trying to get ready. He's in the shower. He showers with the suit on. He's, he tries to get in the car with the, with the suit on. And, and once he gets in the car, it says Tesla, and he, he starts it up, and suddenly he feels like he's flying. And the tagline is um, Spaceships for Earth which, again, probably would never run as a real ad, but um, uh, I think the folks at Tesla enjoyed it quite a bit. And then the third one was kind of experimental for this kind of thing. You don't see uh, this kind of thing very often rise to the top of of ad contests, but uh, a woman named uh, Sonia, she named her ad Sonia's Super Quick Tesla Fan Video, and it's 90 seconds of rapid-fire uh, product feature. Uh, she's talking herself about the product features, and this one is actually worth a quick listen. Um, so let's let's listen to a, a brief clip of this one.
4: Ooh, car. Just kidding. This is not a car commercial. It's on Sonya's super quick Tesla fan video. First up, a super quick Tesla overview. This is a Tesla Model S. An all-electric car. Zero emissions. No and tail. Price. regenerative braking, mm-hmm. Dual motor. All-wheel drive. Mm-hmm. It's the safest car on the road. But it can do mm-hmm. zero to 60 in 2.5. Mm-hmm. And now, people asking stuff. How do you charge it? Easy. Regular charge. At any of these. <laughs> Supercharge. At any of these. Or just use one of these. <laughs> we charge while we sleep.
1: So yeah, I mean, uh, you know, compared to some of the the other Tesla ads we've seen over the years, the the, the spec ones, particularly modern spaceship uh, from 2014 there was one i think a year later called fireflies these were really really amazing looking ads the, the the top 3 in this contest don't compare really to that but what i think is interesting is that first of all that musk responded so quickly and said why not let's just do this it shows a company that is quite nimble in that regard and also i think you know uh, uh, embracing some of these more low budget spots kind of shows the company's ethos as well that you you know if you have a fun idea you don't have to have it be super polished Uh, to get a shot, and, uh, you know, they don't do advertising, but this kind of contest uh, did did get quite a bit of PR for them, and so um, kind of a cool decision to to run with it.
2: You know, like, whenever you see one like this, it's really based on people's passion. I always think, like, we get so caught up in advertising as adults, but when you're a kid, advertising is actually really cool. Like, the idea of making an ad for something that doesn't have ads – Like I remember, me and my sisters playing those games, like writing ads, coming up with ads. My 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 uh, middle sister, like her dream in life uh, was to be the person who writes the back of books, (laughs) (laughs) like the summary of the book. Unfortunately, she ended up being a really successful insurance executive, but like I still have hope that maybe someday, yeah. (laughs) But you know, we would make these ads, and I love seeing like people who still care about that and yeah some of this is like youtube influencer you know kind of flooding the zone but uh you know every once in a while seeing the actual passion that goes into that but this it's a bold move to do an internet vote these days for determining a winner of something because that's how you end up with your Bodie mcboat face and your
1: yeah i'm surprised in a way that they didn't just pick the one they liked the best because that could have worked as well. I think they probably wanted to to do it b- a vote to share it more more broadly. You know, these, they had uh, Marquise kind of sharing it with his folks every day for a month, so that seemed to work out well too. Well, thank you.
2: As
3: a... they get you clicks,
1: yes, yeah. they do.
2: influencers.
1: Actually, uh, Reddit uncovered uh, some um, some sort of uh, bot voting in this contest, by the way, too. And Tesla sort of scratched one of the entries. As a result so there was a mini yeah. scandal element to this topic. come on russia <laughs> <laughs> stuffing the ballot box
2: all right well thank you as always tim for wrapping up the ads worth watching we're time to it's time to move on to our big discussion of the week all right big topic this week we'll try not to uh take up too much time on it but we are talking about can advertising do good and uh, i think the thing that triggered this was your conversation that none less than lee clow possibly the most famous figure in modern advertising uh, the let's see he wrote 1984 right clow he was the art director art director on yes. 1984 sorry um, and uh, really, just one of the, one of kind of the greatest uh, figures uh, from his Chaya
1: Day background. Still, still around. Still pops up. Yeah, still working uh, for for Media Arts Lab uh, and, uh, and Media Arts Lab for Good, which is the. Uh, the wing of of, of uh, TBWA's Mal group that uh, is devoted to purpose based advertising.
2: So, what uh, what triggered this conversation? They just kind of want to let you know more about what he was, what well, they're doing.
1: No, they they've had some uh, changes uh, in the company recently. So, Media Arts Lab is is the uh, the agency within TBWA that that focuses on Apple, and uh, Mal for Good, which was launched in twenty fourteen. Uh, is dedicated to, as I said, purpose-based work. And they've, uh, just last week, they hired Julia Porter Plowman from Widening Kennedy, uh, longtime account director on Nike and some other accounts, uh, as their new managing director. So that's kind of the news hook here. Uh, uh, Duncan Milner, who was the longtime Chief Creative Officer uh, at Media Arts Lab for about 10 years. Uh, last fall, he came over from MAL uh, and became the, the CCO at MAL for Good. So they've really beefed up their offering here and uh, they've sort of formalized it. And uh Lee's uh f- people reached out and said, Do you want to chat with Lee about advertising for good? And I said, Of course.
2: So is the is Apple involved? In, I mean, since it's all under the, the mal branding and that's an Apple-focused agency, is is Apple involved in this or is this just a completely separate thing? No, it's thing? a
1: completely separate thing. It's just the fact that uh that Lee really for many, many years was only involved in Apple. Uh and so he was really really central to the creation of, of the Media Arts Lab. And Lee also has a uh, longstanding uh, commitment to purpose-based advertising going back a long way. He's, in particular, he is a very, very big advocate for animals, and he's done a lot of work with best friends out in L.A. And so when he started getting involved in purpose-based advertising, rather than have it be a TBWA thing, it just sort of naturally became a, a Media Arts Lab thing because he was primarily working for Media Arts Lab. Oh,
2: that's interesting. Any, What was his general take on, kind of before we get into a lot of the specifics uh, and some of our thoughts on on how advertising tries to accomplish good things, what was Lee's, I mean, he's been in the industry for ages. He is one of these iconic figures. Is he still optimistic about Advertising accomplishing social Absolutely.
1: good? I mean, uh, he believes that advertising can change the world, make it a better place. I mean, brands wield an, an awful lot of power. They have a great platform, and, and the messages they send out are, are received loud and clear. And, you know, for him, you know, he, he said that basically his point was that, you know, go back a decade or two decades ago, and you had uh, – corporate social responsibility units within large companies. So you had the CSR team kind of squirreled away in the corner, giving out scholarships to kids every year, and that was kind of the extent of what that unit would do within a, within a big company, whereas the rest of the company would just sell stuff. And that was the primary goal, obviously, of, of, of most brands is to sell things. And doing good in the world, it was sort of very much a side, a side job for the company. And, you know, it's really with, with the advent of the internet, uh, there, I think there's two factors. There's the internet and there's the, the, uh, young people today uh, really, you know, value companies that are trying to, to do good in the world. And so he believes it's becoming, I mean, we're seeing it every day. More and more companies are, are trying to do uh, purpose-based things. They're trying to attach themselves to a cause or, some, you know, something that, that will help uh, either the planet or, or some sort of social cause. And young people want that from a brand. And so a lot of brands are, are jumping on that bandwagon. Uh, the difficulty is, uh, are you being sincere about it? You know, and that's really what Lee and I talked about. Uh, we're going to have a story. My Q&A with him will be going, uh, going up on Adweek in the next couple days. Um, but it's, it's difficult because um, if you think back to, I think, what was really interesting was if you think back to uh, Nike, for example, in the early 90s right they were giving they were sending out all these really positive inspiring messages and yet uh through the famous i believe it was harper's piece that uncovered the the working conditions in their sweatshops out in in asia there was this enormous disconnect between what nike was saying and what they were doing and really what purpose-based advertising does is, is it aligns uh what you say and what you do you can't you know you can't Come out and support a cause if if behind the scenes you're undermining your your own cause. And so that's really what what Lee's point is. And we talked a little bit about this uh, during the the panel at Cannes that I uh, moderated also, which was touched on purpose-based advertising. It's really about how to, uh, as a brand, do good in the world. Uh, and, And it's really about changing your behavior or becoming a company that actually behaves well and then crafting advertising and messaging that, that shows how you're doing that. And you really can't have one without the other. And uh, as we saw with Pepsi this past year, uh, that's, you know, when, when you try to do cause-based advertising and you, and you haven't earned it, you, you fall flat on your face.
2: Yeah, it's like when you try to co-opt something, an issue, a cause, rather than actually getting involved with it. That seems to be when, it's almost worse than not saying anything at all.
1: Right, completely. I mean, there's different, you know, there's different causes, too. I mean, we talk about um, uh, gender equality has been a huge one over the last year. You know, we've seen Fearless Girl, obviously, it w- was was a big part of that. Uh, the stuff that P&G's Secret is doing, you know, Audi had a big spot on the Super Bowl about women's empowerment. Uh, even Axe, which uh, has a new take on masculinity that's, that is that is a lot less sort of misogynistic and weird. Um, so you've got gender equality, you've got overtly political uh, you know, uh, efforts. Um, Gray, for example, has done a lot with with gun control. So you have that sort of stuff, and then you have stuff like climate change. Um, so there's all sorts of uh, you know causes that that we can talk about. Yeah, let, let's let's
2: break those down and start with gender equality because I agree that that's been probably the most visible. Christina, I know this is a topic that uh, you know that you've got a lot of thoughts and opinions about. But at first, I would ask, do you think that brands have really been, and marketers, I guess, in general, have been advancing this issue? Or do you think they've just been kind of riding a wave of social you know, movement towards it? Do, do you know what I mean? Like, um, How much do we have br- sure. to thank brands versus just, are they just glomming on to something that has momentum
3: as the resident woman on this podcast i'm happy to answer things about you guys gender. I always
2: think i'm like tokenizing you if i ask you about being a millennial like <laughs> sammy gave me a hard time last time
3: <laughs> i mean millennials are are sore about being the much maligned generation that are made fun of
2: i think they're great sure <laughs>
3: sure um I mean, do I like any of the campaigns that we just named about gender equality? The only one I like is the Axe one, because that um, you know took took an idea of what masculinity could be and expanded that definition. Um, I I think when we're talking about gender and we're talking about brands, we have to um, we have to look at what they're actually contributing. I mean, what, you know, yes, the fearless girl is, is tied to an initiative to, um, you know, companies run by women, I guess that's something, Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I'm, I get a little sick of the idea that like gender equality is only about like propping women up. It's about like revamping how we interact with each other no matter what our gender is
2: well I feel like that's the biggest change thing that's changed in the last 10 years is you obviously we had Dove doing like the real beauty stuff you know and that was roughly 10 years ago right Tim? Yeah. like uh-huh. so it's
3: okay to be an, a not so pretty woman I guess
2: and like that's the message. the framing of that that hasn't kept up is this idea that it's okay you're prettier than you think right and that's the thing we're now, it's less about that. We saw this the other day with the the tweet that went around of the was it the politics editor at Daily Beast saying women you teach your daughters to say no at an earlier age and it started this uh, you know really a lot of well deserved backlash against him of people saying no this isn't about women being better about saying no this is about changing the toxicity of you know of ma- of what it is to be you know male you know to to of male culture. And, I mean, these are hard things to boil down, but it really did, to me, highlight this difference is, to your point about Axe. Axe is about changing the way masculinity is is framed versus trying to say, women are better than they think they are, and that's what has not aged well about that Dove uh, that Dove work.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Dove and Axe thing is interesting because they're both owned by Unilever, right? And so for many years, people would, would say, Oh, Dove. You, you know that's a great message, but look at what your sister brand is doing, or brother brand, more more <laughs> more aptly. You know your same company, Unilever, is sending out uh, disparate messages about about uh, gender, and that shows that all of them is all of them are BS. Like you can't believe anything a brand says. And on some on some level, right? Like it is kind of weird. Like it's not like you've got you know Always. You've got like a maker of tampons. Kind of trying to empower women, trying to you know, or or acts or any any of these products—they're just products that you buy, right? Like, how can they have how can they embody like a larger idea? But I think you know if, if they can, you know, get these get more inclusive or or tolerant messages out there, and I, I feel like they're you know if they if, if it aligns with their product in some way or with their audience in some way, and it makes a, l- a little bit of a difference. Um, that I think it, it's the, you know they're well within their rights to use that platform to do that, and I think it probably helps a little a little bit at least.
2: One thing I feel like we're seeing more and more is a change to to that point of Unilever, of because uh, you're right, you know that when Axe was at its worst in terms of sexist messaging, it was hard for them to make a stand on Dove or any other product line. Now you're seeing more uh, at the parent company level. Uh, th- that these brands are taking a stance. So P&G, I think, is one of the best examples. P&G owns who knows how many products and brands. Uh, but last week we had their, uh, their spot about the talk, uh, and, and My Black is Beautiful, the movement that they revived after about you know a 10-year hiatus about furthering a national conversation and a global conversation about diversity and, and uh, adversity for minorities. Uh, you know, t- it was interesting that that's coming out of a holding company uh, versus one brand trying to stake a claim, one brand that has a vested interest in, let's say, like minority consumers. Uh, you know, I think this seems to be a trend that we're seeing now. And, and they can also bring a lot more money to bear by doing that.
1: Yeah, and I think the other, the other point that I wanted to make, um, which, you know, we chatted about this uh, on the can. Uh, at the Cannes Festival on the panel that I did. And we can I'd like to play a little excerpt uh, from Chloe Gottlieb of RGA talking about this because her point was that in some ways the advertising itself can change the behavior of of other companies because when advertising like this um, does make a difference, does get noticed, does win awards, does generate buzz, other companies say, I want to do that too. But then when they look at themselves, if they're not behaving in a way that would pay that off, they can't do it. So then they say, well, maybe I go, if I go back, maybe we, we take a good hard look at our culture and the way we treat our employees, the way that we act in the world, the way we treat the planet. Maybe if we change those things, we'll be in a better position to take advantage of this movement toward advertising uh, that has a social message. Maybe we, you know, but, but you have to change how you're acting before you can change what you're saying. Uh, so let's listen to Chloe talk about this a little bit.
3: I think that brands have to align what they say and do. So if The exciting thing about all this work, it'll force people to have tough conversations about what their companies stand for, and it might inspire people to revisit what their mission is. And once the mission and the way they create their products and how they work is aligned, then doing advertising like this makes a lot of sense.
1: So I guess the bandwagon aspect can have negative, uh, can be negative in the case of like a Pepsi, but it can also provoke, I think, hopefully inside companies, some some difficult conversations about are we being the best corporate citizen we can be in the world, and how do we get there so that we can then, uh, you know, do this kind of advertising that appeals to young people who value that kind of uh, that kind of work. So another thing I asked Lee Clow about when we chatted was, you know, given the political environment today, um, you know, where we have this U.S. administration that doesn't really seem that invested in helping the planet or helping. Uh, people help each other, uh, whether that sort of makes it more of a moral imperative for brands to kind of step in and pick up the slack. And, you know, he really said that, you know, he thinks the best purpose-based advertising is really not partisan. It's not very political. It's just, it's. I don't know how easy that is to accomplish, but he suggested that it was stuff, that you know, that everybody can really agree on. Um, and, you know, his, his example there was that TBWA has worked for many years with Conservation International. They did a spot a few years ago that won won a gold line at Cannes, actually, um, with Harrison Ford uh, narrating uh, as the voice of the ocean, talking about how uh, the ocean needs to be respected and so on. Um, but his point really was that, you know, if you politicize it too much, uh, you're going to lose a lot, you're going to lose a fair amount of fan, uh, of customers and uh, that you really should try to, and this might just be Lee's personality, honestly, you should. he's sort of a can't-we-all-just-get-along kind of guy. And uh, he said anything overtly political uh, can be difficult to, to, to you know, accomplish anything with. It just creates more of a divide, uh, which I thought that was an interesting point. I mean, I think certain, certain topics like gun control, it's hard not to politicize them. Uh, others, like the environment, are also very politicized with global warming and so on. Um, and so he thinks that the best, uh, the best efforts in this regard kind of are to try to be inclusive and, and try not to, you know, name call and so on.
2: Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my question for Chris. Is I mean, it feels like any social cause is politicized now, unless you're talking like adoption, which even came up with the, you know, with some of the Russia stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, is there such a thing as a As taking a stance that isn't almost instantly political these days?
1: No,
4: there's not, and because everyone has their opinion, and there will be a media entity out there that will help them affirm that opinion. Um, So you have media companies, though, that are helping uh, the situation. I think, Tim, you wrote about this after the U.S. backed out of the Paris uh, Climate Accord and what Nat Geo was doing as a television network and what the Weather Channel, Weather.com, did – on the day, uh, Trump pulled out of the climate accord with their snarky headlines, which got a lot of play. And uh, we talked to uh, weather.com's editor in chief. And he said, "Um, you know, we don't do politics here. We do science. And today, science took a big shot to the chin. Um, So everyone has their opinion on whatever subject it might be. And there's going to be a media company out there that you're going to watch or listen to or read that will help you continue to affirm that opinion. And I think that's a hard thing to overcome.
2: Yeah, I feel like even something like diversity, you know, there was a time in not too distant past where you could talk about diversity in a way that didn't imply one political stance or the other. I remember when I was a political reporter in the early 2000s, the Republican Party, you know, was telling me, we are trying to diversify, we want a broader tent, we want more diversity in our leadership. You know, that was a fine thing to say. Today, you say the word diversity, and it instantly seems to imply you're on one side of the political split. Someone was asking me the other day about, is ESPN uh, a liberal organization? And someone's saying, like, some of their figures are seen as too, as too liberal. And it's because they talk about, on some of their shows, they talk about diversity. Um, and that immediately, as soon as you start talking about the way that, you know, black players are treated when they, you know, address issues like Black Lives Matter. Um,
4: yeah, it's just, like, these topics have become... Yeah. And the, and the media companies do have a responsibility, but I don't think that they... They live up to it because the bottom line is too important to them. Um, Fox News will always be Fox News the way it is, even without Bill O'Reilly. Even if Sean Hannity leaves, they will still have um, a a type of programming that fits an audience that they have built up over the last 20 years. MSNBC, same things. MSNBC's ratings have never been better. And it's because Donald Trump is in the White House, and it's because Rachel Maddow, and Chris Hayes, and Lawrence O'Donnell, and just about everyone else on that network has their own opinions about Trump's um, being the commander in chief, and they have a, a, a ton of viewers who agree with that opinion. And increasingly, they're watching them at night and during the day and on the weekends and whenever else they can uh, get a hold of them. So, um,
3: well, it's all the ratings so that they can get more money from advertisers. Absolutely, that's the bottom so line. So it's all a game for mm-hmm. advertisers. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. Well, let's let's talk about to one aspect of. The idea of advertising doing good that has surprised me is we see a lot of agencies focused on things like gun violence, gray most specifically, but certainly others, uh, which is about as divisive of the topic as you can get. We see a lot who are focused on gender, a lot who are focused on diversity. What you don't see a lot to a point you just made is climate change. We saw some of that after the Paris Accords. Uh, Tim, earlier today, you and I were talking about the Apple ad featuring Carl Sagan, uh, which was a soft, I would say, response. Uh,
1: really well made though, and, and also by TBWA. By, yeah, by the way,
2: yeah, it all circles back to Lee Cloud. <laughs> um, and but I do, I'm shocked every year when we go to the Can Lions, which is a global festival of creativity and marketing. And every year I'm like, this will be the year that everyone's talking about environmentalism, about climate change, because it's the one issue that affects every single country that that shows up there. And every year, it's not. It's not a major issue in the way that, um, you know, a lot of other important topics are uh, gender. I mean, we have the glass lions at Canada. Yeah, they we create ha- a
1: whole category around gender equality.
2: Yeah, so. but, I mean, literally an issue that threatens the entire planet. Uh, has not. That's not to say it's absent. I think most famously uh, a few years ago there was, uh, remind me about, uh, the, it was Barton F. Graff.
1: Barton F. Graff did a, a campaign for a, a small activist organization called 350 Action Uh, where they suggested, uh, they did a fake newscast where they suggested naming hurricanes after climate change deniers. So you had, you know, Hurricane Rubio coming up the East Coast and slamming into your hometown. And uh, it was very funny, uh, but to Klau's point, that was very politicized. It was openly politicized. It ridiculed the people, the politicians who, uh, you know, are not inclined to believe that climate change is happening. And does that help? I don't know. It, it makes the people, it preaches to the choir and makes us all laugh. But um, whether, it ch- whether that specific execution like that changes anything, I'm not sure.
2: It definitely seems, though, that you have brands that are on the forefront of some of these issues, and then you have all the brands that see the momentum being generated and kind of glom on. And I think that's what surprised me, is that you just don't see that with climate change. You see that with a general message of sustainability, and that's about it. Mm-hmm.
1: And that may be partly because some brands are are not walking the walk behind the scenes too. So if you if you're if you're if you're a brand manager or you're a CMO and you're worried about uh, you're not completely confident in in your supply chain or wh- whatever your back end uh, manufacturing process is, are you going to come out and take a stand against climate change? Probably not. So you know to that end, if they want to, uh, they're going to have to change. Again, they're going to have to change their practices, but. Uh, we we see a little bit of it, you know. Apple's done this, they're, uh, you know, in tandem with their messaging. They're also trying to. They've been trying to change. You know, they were not wonderful uh, to the planet for a while, and and uh, Tim Cook, you know, has been much more so than Steve Jobs ever was. Tim Cook has been a, a leader in that regard with with environmental stuff. I think it was about a year ago. Uh, Tim said, I think it was on a, a, a investor call. He said, some you know some uh, some investor was really pressing him for profit stuff. And, and he said, you know, my, my belief is that companies should have values like people do. And if you, he literally said, if you want me to do things only for ROI reasons, you should get out of my stock. And so that's a pretty blunt way of saying, you know, we should stand for more than, than profits. You know, which is, you know, again, capitalism is not a system that, that uh, really encourages altruism. It, it, it's the bottom line at all costs. And so some of this is driven by uh, individuals like Tim Cook who personally believe that companies have a responsibility to do this. Uh, but I think the better chance of changing the world is to make it a real business case for changing the world. Have it make sense uh, financially for companies to do this. And I think that's what, you know, when, when, when these campaigns seem to work, when, when these advertising campaigns seem to work, it could theoretically reverse engineer better behavior across the board. I think that's kind of the, the idea.
2: Christina, how do you think brands should decide whether to pursue activism? Like, like, you know, do you think, you know, they could go after any topic in the world, right? Like, they could go after gender balance. They could go after education in the third world. There's a million causes uh, that brands could go after, the marketers could could favor. How should they decide what to prioritize? If they want to do good, how do you prioritize?
3: You mean how do you rank uh atrocities across the world that happen to humans versus like the health of the planet I don't know um but I do think that it has a lot to do with what your brand stands for as Tim was saying I mean if you know Patagonia when they come out and and say certain things about the environment it makes a lot of sense for them it makes a lot of sense for them as a brand um because of exactly who their customer is, um, and you know, I, I, I think it has to do with who your consumer is, what they care about, and you know, the way that your brand is in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, brand like Patagonia or like Tom's shoes, these these were brands that were built with with social causes in mind from the very beginning. I mean, the founder of Patagonia. Was an outdoorsman and just was was devoted to environmentalism from the beginning. Tom Shoes, the whole business model is, is a is a social business model. You know, sell a pair of shoes, give a pair of shoes. Uh, it's for companies that are primarily around to sell stuff. To not, they weren't born with the idea of doing good in the world. Like, how do they find a cause? And yeah, it has to be something that that aligns with their with their brand to begin with. So if you're like a Pepsi, instead of doing a you know, Black Lives Matter ad. Why don't you focus on, you know, what, how much plastic you're putting into the environment, and figure out a way to 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 lessen that, and then do messaging around that. That's a much more, that's a that's a message that makes a lot more sense. Coca Cola's been doing that. I mean, but again, it's a it's a business, and Coca Cola. Just this week, we posted an ad, uh, Coca Cola about recycling, and the ad's very sunny and very happy. But Coca Cola has resisted, long resisted efforts to 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 make this. Uh, To make changes to their packaging because it it doesn't make business sense for them to do that, so it's a constant struggle. um, But you know, at the the deepest level, it has to go back to it has to align with something that you're, you know, the product you're making or the brand that you are has to link to the cause you 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 support.
4: Kind of comes back to the discussion about Tesla and were any of those homemade ads did they extol the virtues of it being an environmentally friendly car, or was it about their design, their speed, the fact that it has a front hood trunk?
1: Yeah, some of it was. Um, a few of them did. A few of them um, were, were hooked into that. Uh, certainly, a lot of them had electric theme uh, to them. Um, but yeah,
2: I mean. Well, I mean, plug-in car is a coal-powered car, you know. And that's the thing is, like, we see this all the time with, you know, brands that are about electricity. Uh, you know, I used to work with a power company, you know, in the marketing world, and it's easy for them to say, "Oh, we're." You know, internally, it's like, well, we're creating energy independence from petroleum. uh, But on the other hand, we're doing it by burning coal.
4: (laughs) Unless your power source for the charger comes from solar.
2: Yes. In which case, uh, in for which those, case. Of, those of us who have access. But, you know, there are cool charts that I think that— well, I can't remember if it's the EPA or if they're third-party, but you can go to, type in your zip code, and it'll tell you the sources of your electricity. And where I live, it, it's literally 95% coal, and that's probably true of most of the southeast. It was a little different. When I lived in California, it was natural <laughs> natural gas you're burning, uh, which is a little better, but it's still pretty bad. Um, and, uh, you know, so, yeah, to to I think we've each brought this up is that— Brands are often scared to say anything about the issues in which they are good, because it's just as easy to turn it around and focus on, yeah, but, you know, that, yeah, but you are burning a bunch of coal to do this, you know, you're yes. creating a bunch of
1: waste by doing it. Right. But I think that the, the momentum is there now for, the, the, the advertising with a, with a social purpose and a message is doing so well with consumers that it's going to outweigh the, the drawbacks. I think brands are – we're seeing already that brands are becoming less and less scared to do this. And the and the Trump administration is emboldening some brands to talk more loudly about this stuff.
2: Well, we are out of time for this week, but I want to thank you guys. And we would love to hear from you. If you have any thoughts on how advertising can do good, uh, find us on uh, Twitter uh, at Adweek or I'm at Griner, G-R-I-N-E-R. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at adweek.com. It's podcast at com. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, the subject's not going anywhere. So I have a feeling we're going to be hearing about it even more in the years to come. Uh, we've got a few fun things coming up very soon. We've got um, our next tech series, for those of you who were listening last week, uh, when we talked about it, we're going to be continuing that with uh, more about the future of technology and how that's going to apply to your job. So definitely check in next week. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, we've also got our special package on marketing to millennial parents coming up very soon. Uh, so keep an eye on Adweek, Dot com for for that and uh yeah i've got a lot more stuff uh coming up in the next few months it's gonna be a, a fun uh into the summer of a lot of content uh this week's uh episode was produced by christina Mamos. thank you christine it's fun to have you here and,
3: fun to be here
2: and uh and chris thanks again for uh joining us it's great to have you back we'll have you back soon appreciate it and Tim, always a pleasure. Thank you. Our theme music is by Home. And please remember to leave us a review if you have not already on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, those reviews make us feel great, but they also help new listeners discover the podcast. We will talk to you next week.